One critic has described Crusaders as a Dostoevskian doorstopper of a debut, by which I imagine he meant it is both a big book and a book that tackles big themes, including religion, politics, morality and crime. The book is set in Newcastle in 1996, shortly before Labour come to power. John Gore, a young idealistic clergyman, returns home to plant a new church in one of Newcastle's most deprived areas. This brings him into contact with the city's political and criminal classes. I asked Richard about the diverse elements he brings together in the book. There was a set of things that was starting to happen in the northeast around the mid-90s that I put together in my mind to conceive the story, and certainly the first of them was this phenomenon, if you like, of church planting, which the Church of England was seeming to get engaged in as a way of finding new congregations, addressing the you know, seemingly perennial decline of their existing ones, but also, I think, fulfilling um, what a certain wing of the church would regard as their social mission. Mm. So it was a kind of new form of church, rather low budget, in places where uh, sometimes even social services feared to go and deprived. It was sort of taking the church to the people rather than getting the people to come to the church. Exactly. It it seemed as if uh, that was the only way to do it. (laughs) You know, nothing else. You know, bingo and jumble sales weren't going to do the the job anymore. What was it about that that made you think, ah, this is... This has got the, you know, the, the makings of a, a book. Well, I mean, the, the, the image of someone, you know, rather like St. Paul going into the, the town centre and standing on uh, up and getting rocks thrown at them is an, an attractive one. <laughs> that kind of, the kind of stark, almost irrational <laughs> nature of the, uh, of the mission given mm-hmm. the difficulties you're going to face. So it has drama in it per se. But that, that, coupled with that was the sense that I felt uh, of the landscape of the Northeast. The role of the church up there, both the, the, the Methodist Church and the Anglican Church, and its entwined history with uh, the Labour movement and the Labour Party, you know, um, the tradition of Christian socialism, if you like, it seemed to be one that was worth looking at in the context of, uh, of the contemporary time, the, the, the then contemporary period, because another aspect of what I was interested in was at that time in the mid-90s was the election of Tony Blair as leader of the Labour Party, mm. because he was clearly churchy. Uh, professedly so, and he uh, professed northeast roots. Uh, he was raised in High Shincliffe, and he had his constituency in, in Sedgefield. And people would sometimes um, cast aspersions on those roots, but I think it was very deeply felt in his case. Mm. So uh, there was a, a, a level of interest there for me too. There was also, I, sh- I should mention, contemporaneously, the state of organised crime in Newcastle had sort of had the lid torn off it uh, somewhat by uh, a particularly nasty murder. Uh, that suddenly revealed the extent to which Newcastle, as many other cities in the UK, had been transformed in its criminal element by the amount of money to be made out mm. of drugs after the whole late 80s uh, acid house uh, explosion. So, yeah, crime, religion, politics, that was those were the elements in the brew. And you set about researching all of these quite thoroughly as part of the background to the book. Yeah, it took me a while. It took me a long time to to begin to see how I could piece these things together and then you know put meat and and uh, and flesh on the, on the skeleton but I, I, I'm a sort of uh, inveterate you know collector of newspaper clippings and a kind of ardent researcher you know user of, of um, notebook and tape recorder and so the, the detail accumulated to the point where uh, yeah I felt that I had um, 
just enough confidence to, to go to page one. How did you investigate the crime? I'm particularly interested in the research that... There's only so much that. I can say, <laughs> is, is the truth. The people who helped me um, can't really talk about them. I cert- uh, but I, I certainly met a number of, a couple of people in particular who worked in the profession that's now known as, known as security consultancy. People that we used to call bouncers and, and still do to some extent, which is a very tough job. And, and as I think we all know, can present certain temptations and some people remain above it. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's well documented that the traffic in narcotics in cities is often regulated through the doors of, of clubs. It, it enables the, um, the dealers and their, and their masters to, to exert a control over who gets what and when and, and what, what gets paid for it. So, um, you know, the, the, the life of the bouncer does cast a light onto that. Mm. Now, the, the structure of the book, I think I've heard you talk about 19th century antecedents and mm. at the back of the book you mentioned Dostoevsky as giving you some sort of mo- you know, moments or sort of nuggets in the book maybe come from, or chapter headings come from Dostoevsky. Mm. Can you say a bit about how, how having decided what kind of book you wanted to write, the sort of structure began to take shape? Yeah, I, mean, I should probably say first that the debts to Dostoevsky are just, I think, what you do when you're a first-time novelist, um, starting probably a little later in life than others, the tendency to refer to the literature that you really love is often quite irresistible. It's certainly, uh, and I just felt the need to be honest about the theft. Uh, I obviously wasn't trying to uh, stand in the company of the great ones, which I'm certainly not entitled to do. But it's a love of uh, Dostoevsky's big books and the way he um, assembled them, which was quite often in a way that that critics find uh, untidy. Uh, But there was something, uh, he was a master of dramatic scenes, and I think anyone who loves Dostoevsky will have very strong images and scenes in their minds. From the big books, even when they get you know a bit baggy and unruly, for me the structuring was predicated on having four characters to whom I wanted to do equal justice: the, the vicar John Gore, the hard man Steve Coulson, the the modernising Labour MP Martin Pallister, and the young mother Lindy Clark. The idea of doing a novel in multiple books or parts with lots of chapters, that is clearly a, you know, a debt to those 19th century books I loved. Specifically, I wanted to, to move back and forth between past and present to show in a, in a way how, um, not to be too Marxian about it, how, how a political economy can, can shape our, our lives. You know, uh, There's also, I think, a kind of some Calvinistic part of me that, that uh, finds predestination you know, still a, a reasonably lively idea. And, and so... Uh, the route, the road that people take to me is, is often more interesting than, than where they end up. But I also wanted to make sure that each character was fully presented to the reader and that not no single one was privileged above the other. In other words, in my third-person voice, I would um, try and accurately capture their, their voices in dialogue but apply the same third person to each one of them so that the reader wouldn't be tempted to prejudge whether one was doing a finer thing for a living uh, than the other. Mm. That Hopefully that, that their view would emerge in the reading rather than me telling them. And how much experimentation did you have to do to get that third-person voice working with the, for example, the Geordie dialect, which is a big part of the book? Mm. Did, was, did you have to 
experiment a fair bit. Well, I wouldn't say experimentation, just as much as revision upon revision and finding sentences that felt, you know, supple and, and, and rhythmic and not too tortuous. Though it's, it, there's no question that for, for certain contemporary readers, or, or even for readers who would profess a great love of the 19th century uh, tradition, it, it still might be, be tortuous for them. But uh, there was certainly um, yeah, a, a lot of rewriting, and uh, but that's also inevitably part of the the, the this came with the scale of the of the intricate plotting and the interweaving. Mm. So there was a lot of different demands on on the the prose style, if you like. Some of it is to do with information and relaying it. Yes, I imagine the plotting was quite a a big undertaking to work out what was going to be revealed to the reader when and yeah. flashbacks and. It did become a bit like shifting tanks around uh, at a certain point, uh, and and one one tug of, mm. of a wire at one end would would upset a lot of um, soldiers, uh, toy soldiers at the other, you know. So yeah, that was quite painful, but 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 also fascinating, uh, and I felt it was going to you know be worth all the effort I could put into it if in the end produced as you know a satisfying denouement. One moment that I, I picked up on was you mentioned Manny Shinwell, an old Labour MP, mm. who said something to the effect that as long as the North East has got coal, mm. it'll have no tells. Yeah. And really the whole book, I suppose, is dealing with that sort of post-industrial heritage and mm. what people do in that landscape, you know, and you mentioned yeah. the crime, the politics, the church, those mm. are the sort of three arenas in which the consequences of of no longer having that sort of strong mm. industry, strong faith, strong belief in a political cause yeah. are played out. Mm. Is, is, that, is that kind of the sort of impetus, if you like, for what yeah. well, drove well, the, the book forward? It was the world of 1996, the book's time present, that I was going to have to depict most carefully. That question of what comes next after the decline of heavy industry was, was certainly the presenting problem. And it remains so <laughs> to an extent to this day, even though the regeneration of Newcastle, which is seen to be in its kind of fledgling days in, in Crusaders, has since come on by considerable leaps. But there's still a, a similar problem in, uh, today, uh, what we might call a, a donut effect of regeneration, whereby the city centre is immaculate, as is the riverside, mm. but uh, just, you know, 10 minutes walk east or west, you'll still find, you know, demolition and deprivation and worklessness, as is the, mm. um, the current uh, phrase, and new occupations that don't necessarily fit the people who are still, unfortunately, living in these uh, mm. depressed conditions. So it, it's, it's a specifically northeast problem, but, you know, a, a national problem too. We find in the book, by the time Gore has made the acquaintance of Martin Pallister, we find a lot of hard thinking going on about what uh, will replace you know, the great, majestic, heavy industries. What can regeneration do? It's probably a vague sense that maybe regeneration itself will be the industry that, that fills the gap. Yes, well, there's uh, people endlessly coming up with schemes and sending in platoons of seemingly uh, uh, right thinking and helpful uh, community workers. Well, there's a Blue Skies Thinking <laughs> conference, isn't there, which Pallister <laughs> invites Gore to, and Gore goes along yeah. with gritted teeth and feels very much this is not his this is not his thing at all. Exactly. But does he have any solutions himself? This, of course, is uh, what what it comes down to in the the, the uh, un uneasy friendship that is never quite far away from a fist fight between him and the MP. The old state socialism, which Pallister has decided has failed, 
is something that uh, Gore kind of clings to through heritage, being of, of old Labour stock himself. But he is um, short of ideas when asked uh, what he actually concretely will propose as a remedy, other than you know love each other or die, which I'm afraid is a bit too easy. <laughs> His own mission. I mean, he he says to himself before preaching a sermon on one occasion, nothing too churchy, John. Mm. And it seems to me that he's kind of like a sort of not very effectual social worker a lot of the time. You know, he's, mm. he's, he, there's no, there's the, in contrast to him, there is an evangelical vicar also yeah. with, with, a, with a parish. Yeah. And there's a, there's a marked contrast there between the way they, they want to put across their Christian message. The socialistic dimension of the church has always uh, is interested me a great deal. It, the, the, he's not mentioned in the book, but he, in a sense, would be a, a shadow over it. The figure of David Jenkins, the former Bishop of Durham, who in 1984 made a, a famous stand on behalf of the miners uh, in, in the midst of the, the terrible strike. And Jenkins was also controversial because a, a classic liberal, he, he dared to question you know, the, the virgin birth and the resurrection in ways that seemed perfectly normal to most educated people mm. at the time, but you know, still had the, the smack of heresy for some at the time. These days, in, in, our, in our current moment, uh, the evangelical church seems to have almost all the energy that's still uh, existent in, in Christianity. But, of course, uh, it stakes its claim on biblical truth and personal salvation, which again are, are I think, rather niche experiences mm. for a lot of people. I think in, in the 80s, I remember hearing a lot, of, hearing this terrible lament a lot of time, people resorting to Yeats's famous line about the best lack all conviction and the worst burn with a passionate intensity. And I got very sick of hearing that quite quickly. I, I thought, do you have any right to call yourself the best if you are so short on convictions? Isn't it about time you got some passionate intensity going on to fight these enemies? And uh, one thing you can't fault the evangelicals for is their passion. And the same might be said you know, in a different case of, of modernising politicians and whatnot. You have to uh, respect uh, anybody who's going about their job more efficiently and diligently than, than you are. Mm. <laughs> Which is a problem for John Gore in the book. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned the four main characters, but it seemed to me that masculine identity is something that you're particularly concerned with and how particularly, particularly how men forge a way in the world in this sort of post-industrial hmm. landscape. And do you think, is that is that fair? I don't know if it's a particular, I, I'd be equally concerned about how women manage to, uh, is a simple answer. I think there is a certain stress upon masculinity in the Northeast that I've tried to convey in the book. And, you know, the work associated with heavy industry was undoubtedly part of the gendered division of labor, as they call it in sociology. It was man's uh, work and there was a pride in that and it was facilitated by women having to take on an extremely heavy role in, in the household and with children. And that's all changed in the new economy, absolutely. But it's, it's as important to me in the novel that uh, Lindy Clark uh, has to work uh, three or four different, what we might call short-term contract jobs <laughs> in order to make one wage for mm. her uh, her young son, as it is that that Steve Coulson effectively makes his living out of his own massively steroid inflated uh, bulk. Uh, then, of course, John Gore and Martin Pastor are both essentially living by their wits, which is another common occupation at the mm. moment. And it seemed to me that the, the characters who, if you like, thrive most readily in the book are the ones who learn the right language, 
they learn the skills of self-presentation, like Simon Barlow, the, mm. the evangelical who's got a big congregation, mm. and Pallister, who has his own sort of political journey in the book, yeah. and fits in with the with the ethos of New Labour, or at least learns to speak the the lingo. Whereas those who who don't learn to do that, who have qualms about it, you know, sort of crash and burn. I think the there's a you know a battle between principle and pragmatism going on there. And you could say that it's one that ends bleakly for uh, for some of the main characters. I guess what I'm, uh, you know, I'm I don't have any kind of treatise or tract type um, answer to that. I mean, drama has its own momentum with characters as to what happens to them. I suppose the simplest thing for me to say is that there are a lot of people in the novel who are doing obvious good. They're the kind of people who uh, support Gore and his mission, who, who are lay people in the main. And they simply give you know everything of themselves to other people's betterment. And they carry no baggage uh, with them. In a sense, it's the baggage that comes with Gore's uh, dog collar and the baggage that, that comes with, with uh, Martin Pallister's party affiliation that, are, that make problems for them. For people who aren't religious, I think, but you know, wish to do good in the world. The Labour Party can often be a form of secular faith, I think, and and you can feel their disappointment in a, in a, in a quasi-religious sense when mm. they feel let down. But you could say, you know, historically, the Labour Party is, but itself, a reflection or offshoot of a larger Labour movement that had um, all sorts of great uh, associative traditions within it, and party politics was, in, in a sense, a, a poor shadow of it. Pallister understands those contradictions as a historian uh, before he becomes an MP but you know we sometimes fail to put into action the things mm. that we think we understand and so he himself comes painfully to learn you know, the limits of which of what politics is capable of some of that he clearly sees in Gore and, and, and wants to instill in it, in mm. it too because because he um, uh, he can sniff sanctimony there so it's it, it, it's it's wisdom dearly bought for all of them but you know, I, I hope that by reflection, readers will also see that the, the characters who, ma- who make the least fuss about it are the ones who go about doing good mm. for other people. <laughs> and you, because the characters have the, their backstories, you take us through the events of the late seventies and the eighties, and you take the book right up to the eve of the general election mm. in ninety-seven. So in a way, you kind of you, you're getting us to reflect on the Tory years and also implicitly to sort of think about what's coming after because there's all this build-up and of course the characters mm. in the book don't know what's coming but we know because we've, we've lived through it and there's that sort of invitation to yeah. to kind of reflect on, 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 <laughs> on promises broken or you know expectations not met. Yeah, yeah. Well it's the cycle that comes uh, on the dawn of uh, every election when we hear uh, you know the same old uh, calls for change, but you know, in saying that, that therefore, I don't mean any uh, implied criticism of of the government that, that have been in ever since the book uh, ends. I just think it's uh, the nature of politics. I mean, if you just consider, for instance, Tony Blair. I mean, I I, I take as an epigraph to the book a uh, quote from a, an article he wrote for the Telegraph in 1996, where he described Pontius Pilate as the archetypal politician. You know, what's interesting about him is not that he was a bad man, but how nearly he was a good man. Well, I think that um, is, uh, if you'll excuse my saying, almost an, an eternal <laughs> um, dilemma in politics. And I, I'm as interested in Pontius Pilate as I am in, in Tony Blair. And I think that that, that battle of pragmatism and principle is, uh, is similarly uh, an ongoing one. And having tackled such a broad canvas for your first novel, are you 
already planning a second, writing a second? I am indeed uh, about to hoist a second one up onto the, the blocks. My editor and I both agreed that it would be a, a good discipline for me and also a kindness for my readers if I wrote something that was about 250 pages long next time. And I also felt I would like to write it in the first person to have that, that luxury, which <laughs> it now seems to me, to not have to disclose so much about one's characters. So that, that's the task uh, for this year. Richard Kelly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.